Welcome to episode 132 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. This is this is a bit of a special edition, Shane. Is, is that what we're going to call it? I think so. Uh, yeah, we're, we're trying a, a slightly different, I don't know if we call it format or whatever, but anyway, um, listeners may not even notice anything's different because, you know, we're just going to babble on as we usually do. That's <laughs> just it. So we're just trying a different uh, cadence in our, in our recording and just a slightly different way of doing things. And uh, yeah, people, people probably won't even notice a difference, but, but we will just, uh, just in how we're, we're going to do some of these recordings to, uh, to, to work around some of our own personal schedules uh, and that sort of thing. So, so what happened to me this this past little while is that I've uh, I've been prepping some presentations, and one thing that we we do try to do is to make sure that we get more mileage out of the presentations that we create. So, for example, I'm uh, I'm creating a, a few presentations to give over the summer, and and then I had this one sort of uh, not not sprung on me, but. But uh, but the the history committee chair uh, Clark Muir, good friend of mine, um, asked me just to talk briefly about um, you know this this topic, new perspective, uh, new perspectives gained from from you know sort of recreating some old uh, observations from older from you know long gone astronomers, and uh, you know I, I was excited to do it. I was happy to do it and happy to to co present with with Clark and Randall, and uh, we kind of based. Our, our little presentation that we did to 116 people yesterday on the podcast that we had done a few weeks back, Shane. So I think I, I mentioned that to you briefly, but mm-hmm. I thought that mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Like Clark brought his little Galileo refractor and gave an explanation of that and showed it to people. It's cool. Yeah. You know, we, we've done, well, 100 and what is this? 132 podcasts now. Yes. Um, and there, there are definitely a few that stand out and just about, I think all of the standouts are when we have guests on, uh, not yeah. that I don't like talking to you, Chris, but you know, these, <laughs> sometimes the guests we bring on really have, uh, you know, an interesting topic. Right. Yeah. And, um, what I really like, one of the standouts is when Clark and Randall were on and we talked about like recreating some of these older telescopes, you know, that Galileo would have used and try to try to live that experience in terms of what the observations were like. I was fascinated by that. And I think it was such a cool project um, that, you know, I, (laughs) I, I just wish there was kind of more of that almost happening because, you know, it it probably gives you a greater appreciation for everything that we have, you know, to use today. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so what, what happened this week is I was developing some of these other presentations and, and with it in mind that we would, we would use them, um, you know, not, not just for the presentations that I have to give, which which are going to be kind of like a one shot wonder. And it seems kind of like, um, like a waste, like I've, I've literally developed presentations and and I don't mind doing this. I don't mind developing a presentation and giving it. Um, but sometimes I, I show up at a place to give it and maybe it's in a, in a park or on an online webinar or something. And three people show up, and uh, and that's fine. I mean, that just happens, and and I I give as good a presentation as I can give um, to those three people. And sometimes I'll do it a little bit different, just because um, when you have a smaller audience, sometimes you can interact with people in in different ways that's just not possible. Um, like when you have 116 people, like I did yesterday with with Clark and and Randall. Um, but at the same time, um, even if you do get lots of people show up, um, you put you put the work in. 
um, like I did to this presentation. And, uh, you know, I sat down, I spent a few hours uh, doing this, which, which brought together some of the papers that I've written for the journal and, and some of my own thoughts, some of my own sketches, um, you know, and I kind of liked it. And then it's like, just a flash in the pan. I, I think I had five or six minutes to present this, which was probably not enough time. And so I was kind of like a little bit bummed if that was all this, this presentation was, was ever going to see for the light of day. You know? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And then as well. Um, so our audience for that is, is uh, I, I'm not sure if it's like a general astronomy audience or not. Like it's, it's people that are going to the RASC general assembly and, uh, you know, like I, I think uh, Dave Chapman was there and some some other people like we've had on the show, but um, I, I'm not sure, like in general, how much how much observing some of those people might do. They have a lot of different interests. A lot of people are interested in astrophysics and hearing astrophysicists talk um, who come to those presentations. So here here I am talking about, you know, some some of my sketches, which I think kind of look like maybe a, a grade three student. Uh, did and and they're like, you know, what, what's this guy <laughs> going on about? So, um, but I think it might work a little bit better for for our, our audience of of amateur astronomers and and stargazers. So, so without further ado, I called this new perspectives from old astronomers. So, and and Shane, you have not seen this before. You no, have not no. you have not seen this before, and we're we're taking uh, a six minute presentation that I should have had about twenty minutes to do, and I'm I'm showing it to you for the first time. We're going to do this in an interactive way, and I'm I'm going to put you on the spot and see if you can name any of these individuals that I have on the screen. Oh well, <laughs> it, then then my my goal is to just take you off track and confuse you. And <laughs> all right, um, so. Okay, maybe I should give, I can give you hints. I'll give you hints. So the person in the top left Ptolemy. is is a famous astronomer oh, okay. who starts with a uh, famous famous philosopher who is also an astronomer. Oh, yeah, one of the yeah. early astronomers and and his name starts with an A. Aristotle. <laughs> there you go. See, you got Woo! it. Okay. This is okay. going to be like a I should have like a prize at the end for you. Um, let, let me take a stab at the middle one. Is that El Sufi? That is uh, Albir El Sufi. Yeah, that's yes. that's correct. And then I think you actually said the person in between them. Oh, oh, um, 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 um who did I you just had say? It. Oh, gee, now, uh, oh, Ptolemy, Ptolemy. Yeah, there you go. And then the the person on the right is is the famous, you know, guy with the moons, Jupiter. And, yeah, yeah, Mr. Galileo. Nice and, uh, headwear there. Exactly. I hadn't seen that shot before. What I tried to do is I tried to find, um, in a way, sort of matching drawings of, of all of them, like ones that ah, look yeah. style. Yes. I was going for a certain aesthetic here. And then on the top right is, uh, is the famous Sicilian um, early astronomer whose name starts oh. with H. At the, yeah. You've, you've talked about him a number of times. The um, name doesn't roll off the tongue like Hodierna does, but uh, that's, that's who it is. So so Aristotle um, was an early astronomer, I guess, if, if we can call him an astronomer. I mean, although, like, if you actually read his meteorology, it reads more like astrology almost. Like, if you actually sit down uh, to read it, um, where he's talking about some of some of the astronomy. But what what happened was he he had a he had a teacher. I'm not going to get into all this too much, but he had a teacher at. Um, you know, at, at, at the Platonic school that he was going to. And that teacher had gone to Egypt. 
And when that teacher had gone to Egypt and learned the astronomy, and I, I know who all these people are, but I don't want to start throwing a, like a whole pile of names and dates and that sort of thing, because it just gets really confusing fast. And I've taught this in my astronomy class and have had that feedback. So anyway, so Aristotle is going to a school. He has a teacher. The teacher had uh, had gone to Egypt and learned really what, what would have amounted to as, as um, really the mix of astrology and astronomy from the Egyptians. Um, and then had kind of started to distill out, um, you know, sort of the early thoughts on what would be, you know, sort of the very small early building blocks of astronomy and taught those to Aristotle. And Aristotle began to look at the nighttime sky and make interpretations based on that, often, uh, often incorrect and often sort of mixed up with, with you know, what, what I would call anyway, uh, astrology and sort of, um, you know, some some accurate and some inaccurate hypothesis about the way um, the universe and, and the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere work. Um, then we have Ptolemy. Now, Ptolemy um, was working from a data set that came to him from past astronomers uh, and a star catalog, most notably by an individual named Hipparchus. Uh, but, but Ptolemy's work is the one that survives. And it really brought together a lot of previous observations of these misty spots uh, in the nighttime sky. And then these were built upon by other astronomers, uh, perhaps most notably is, is as, as you pointed out, Al-Sufi, who is a Persian astronomer. And, and he added uh, a few, uh, most notably perhaps the, the Andromeda Nebula or the Andromeda Galaxy although it seemed to get dropped for a period of time um, for unknown reasons. And then um, what Galileo did is he, I'm, I'm going to sort of dive into all this, but what Galileo did is he started looking at some of those misty spots. So for example, M, what we know is M44 and Messier 44 was originally called Preacept or the Beehive Cluster, but, but most notably as, as the uh, Preacept or the manger or the manger fuzzy spot in the sky up in the constellation of Cancer the Crab. And, and Galileo pointed his telescope at this, I think in, in very late 1609 or early uh, 1610, and discovered that, that it split into stars. And he actually drew about uh, 40 of those stars. Um, but Galileo himself, and I've never been able to, to determine, but I, I don't think Galileo, apart from, from making the discoveries of, of what some of these misty spots were, um, and the, the moons of Jupiter and the craters on the moon, which are all big discoveries. I don't think that he actually found a deep sky object of his own. Do you know if he did or, or not, Shane? Am I incorrect there? Uh, I think you're right. But when it comes to the history of these guys, this is not my strong suit at all. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll defer to you. But I, I do believe that, you know, my limited knowledge of these guys, I, I think that that is accurate. Yeah, there was a few people that... Uh, that Galileo observed with or, or gifted telescopes to, or just other people at the time that made a, a, a few uh, discoveries. There was an individual, I think in, in around, um, you know, the teens, like the 16 teens uh, who discovered M42. Um, there was, there was some sort of minimal um, discoveries made. Um, but then typically what most people um, uh, see as sort of the first uh, deep sky catalog is, is by Messier. And one of my interests is uh, what, well, what happened right before Messier, uh, you know, sort of in that 100 or 150 years prior in, in deep sky discoveries and observations. And, and the, early, the, most, the earliest and most leading figure on this is, is a gentleman named Hodierna, who was, 
who was a uh, who was a member of the Catholic clergy on the island of of Sicily, um, sort of private, like a private uh, clergy person who was uh, ministering to uh, like a like just a noble family or something. And I, I don't believe they had uh, tons and tons of money either. Um, so he was just kind of doing astronomy as he could with a a, a Galileo type telescope of about uh, of about twenty power. So anyway. So we'll uh, we'll dive dive into into all this uh, a little bit. So so on the right here, Shane, I have uh, I have a, a sketch that I did. Um, I haven't put the constellation name in. How good is my sketch? Can you recognize the constellation I have up here? Uh, yeah, you know you have uh, the winter the winter dog. Um, yeah, Canis uh, Canis Major. Yeah, ex- exactly. So. Um, and what I've what I've labeled here is Cirrus, which is the brightest star in our nighttime sky. And then um, what I've drawn here this this is a drawing that I did um, over uh, over behind uh, where my folks live in Nova Scotia, um, looking out over the North Atlantic uh, one Christmas a few years ago. And I I drew in um, all the deep sky objects I could see with my unaided eye, and uh, and what they look like with my eye. <laughs> alone that's pretty cool so that's that's what you have here so we have cirrus and then i have sort of the little stick pattern of of the dog and then below it i have uh the open cluster m41 i have um to to the left of cirrus or to the east of cirrus i have m46 and m47 below those far below those have m93 i have uh tau canis uh, majoris which is like a like a grouping of double star and, and there's a cluster in there somewhere i have a, a line of very faint stars going around delta canis majoris um which is sort of the middle bottom uh of the dog there's a little triangle down the bottom this is the the top of that little triangle and then below that i have uh colander 140 and then below that even i have uh, colander, uh, 135. So I, I, what I was doing, what, why, why did I do this? Well, if you start reading about the messy objects and you get to M41, which is, um, among the brightest messy objects in the region of Canis major, um, you'll indubitably come across this quote from Aristotle and references, um, sort of going back to a person named Gore in 1902, he, he wrote about the messy objects um, that refers to Aristotle making an observation of M41, messy 41, this open cluster just below Cirrus. I think it's like four or five degrees below Cirrus. Hmm. And, and it says, uh, Aristotle's quote is a, a star with a tail. In fact, uh, if, if you read um, the full context of Aristotle's quote, he's talking about um, stars with a tail that that are in relation to comets and the atmosphere, because comets were, were thought to be atmospheric phenomena at that time. Um, but I thought this was this was really weird that it would be M41, because I've been observing M41 with my unaided eye and binoculars um, like almost my whole life, it seems, or, or for many, many years. And uh, I never would have really thought that to the unaided eye, M41 looked that much like a comet. And in, in the full context of this, so, so what happened was um, there was a paper that was written by uh, Dr. Barry, who was a classics professor at the University of British Columbia. And he wrote this paper in, in 1977. 
Um, I, I was, I was not doing astronomy in 1977. I'm going to put it that way. Um, but, uh, a, a number of decades later, I was studying archeology span in England under Dr. Barrett and, and, uh, in, in a course that he would take across to central England, um, from UBC. And, and I would, I, I was doing the summer course and, uh, and we had talked some about astronomy, I guess. And I was just kind of getting interested in astronomy at the time. And, and uh, as, as I was working through the messy objects, I came, I eventually came across like in future years, his, uh, his paper on this um, about M41 and Aristotle and a vertivision because Aristotle was talking about a vertivision. Now, Shane, what's a vertivision? We've talked about that before. And we talked about that in a recent episode on night vision. Um, what, what is a vertivision exactly? Yeah. So your, your eye kind of uses two parts of it to, um, to look at objects. So, you know, the center of your eye is what sees what's right in front of you. And then you have your peripheral vision. Um, when we're talking about using averted vision, it's looking at an object with your peripheral and it's more sensitive. Uh, so your peripheral vision can see fainter objects sometimes or more detail yeah. in objects. Right. And so in, in Aristotle's description of the star with the tail, um, he referred to, to, the, uh, to the use of averted vision and, and observing um, the star with the tail, and he described it as in the thigh of the dog. And in early drawings, uh, in particular in, in the Frenese Atlas, which is, which is in Florence, I went, I went to Florence, but I didn't actually go in and look at it. My, my father-in-law did. Um, I was, I was over at the Museum de Galileo in La Spagola. Um, but anyway, um, I didn't really think that M44 was, was really in the thigh of the dog either. And if you use averted vision, you can, st- from a really dark site, you can start to see some of the stars in M41, but you get this fuzzy um, blob with direct vision. And then with the averted vision, you get the stars. And so what I was trying to figure out, because I, I really didn't think that, that it was M41 and in reading Dr. Barrett's paper, um, he indicates that, that he was very certain. Like here's, here's um, a classics professor um, at a university, trained archaeologist um, saying, um, this is not what it is, you know, as, as, a, as an observer and as, an, as a, a, you know, an archaeologist, um, this is wrong, right? And I also love this because my background really isn't in archaeology. It's actually in philosophy. And I'd studied Aristotle extensively and was, and, you know, very familiar with reading um, his philosophy works. Um, so I was like, this is a good challenge for me. Um, now, Dr. Barrett thought that there was this faint chain of stars around Delta uh, Canis Majoris and that, that perhaps that was it, but, but hadn't made the observations. Um, so what I decided to do is just go out and draw the constellation. And so I did. And then this is the result of, of many observations over many nights showing what you can see with averted vision with, um, with any kind of deep sky objects or, or really anything around it that, that might appear. So, um, so the first thing I did is, is focus on M41 and M41 just looked like a fuzzy blob with averted vision. You can see the stars. Um, and that really doesn't, that really doesn't scream comet. So, so to, to prove it out, you'd want it to look more cometary with the averted vision than you would with the direct vision. So, so it's sort of the opposite of actually what I thought Aristotle was referring to. 
And then I took a look at um, the chain of stars around uh, Delta Canis Majoris, um, which is the top star in the little triangle in the bottom of Canis Major. And then as well, the, the uh, Tau Canis Majoris um, region. Um, and, and so the stars around Delta Canis Majoris, like I could see no problem with my unaided eye. In fact, those ones are super easy to see. It's a star chain. It's really pretty, but um, it doesn't look anything cometary at all whatsoever to, to my eye. And Aristotle would have seen this higher in the sky and unless his vision was very poor and there's nothing to suggest it was, um, he, he should have probably even seen it better than I did. Um, Tau Canis Majoris, uh, it's a couple stars really. And that, that's what it looks like to me anyway. And it's sort of fuzzy around them. It's, it's kind of a neat thing. I actually think that that probably uh, out of the ones that, that Barrett uh, mentioned, that's probably the best uh, candidate that, that he came up with. I also drew M46 and M47, which, which are far off, but it kind of gives a bit of a reference for what these things look like. And then M93, which just looks like a fuzzball, no matter what you do with your eye. Um, but then down below, I found the Colander 140. Um, I, could, I could see the stars and this sort of wispy um, tail of, of fuzziness by using averted vision and sort of going back and forth between direct vision and inverted vision, you'll see this, this little grouping of stars that form like a L on its side. And then, um, sort of the, the open spot on the L and, and pointing back, um, towards the, uh, towards the East, um, you, you can see like a bit of a tail. Um, and to me, I feel like that is, is the best candidate and then again, when I, when I referred to some of the older um, atlases that would have been around the time that I, that, you know, at least as far as I can gather of Aristotle, um, that would be in, in the part that most uh, clearly represented um, the thigh of, of the dog of, of Canis Major. So I actually think that uh, the Colander 140 is what Aristotle uh, was referring to because it, it appears, it actually appears like if, if you know this going out, uh, shockingly like a comet um, versus M41 that doesn't. And I think what happened was, um, and what Barrett was pointing towards, is that people have maybe kind of misfit um, some of these deep sky objects with some of the descriptions early on, because we, we knew about M41. These are the most popular objects, um, but there's lots of things that are, uh, that are visible to the unaided eye. I'm not sure what your thoughts are on, on, my, on my ramblings there, Shane. <laughs> Well, it's very interesting. And, um, you know, I appreciate the um, uh, kind of the questioning, I guess, right? That M41 doesn't appear to, you know, m m match the description of uh, a star with a tail. Because um, I think, you know, probably through translation and then just time, some of, uh, some of the, you know, accuracy is maybe lost in the records, right? In terms of yeah. uh, what what the person really was looking at or referencing in the night sky. Um, so, you know, in this case, uh, especially even just looking at your sketch, uh, Colander 140 certainly looks more like a, a star with a, a potential tail to it. And, um, you know, what I find interesting too, is I use averted vision all of the time at the telescope to observe deep sky objects, but I, you know, I'm not sure I've used it all that often, you know, naked eye observing. And, and to be fair, I, I don't do a lot of naked eye observing under a dark sky. I'm typically looking through a telescope and, and maximizing my time there. But um, next time we do get to a dark sky, I will spend a little more time using averted vision, uh, naked eye observing. Well, what's kind of funny is that um, 
you know, and, and not to correct you, but uh, this kind of was inspired by you in a way. <laughs> oh, well, how about that? <laughs> Be, because we were, we were out observing on some nights and you kept pointing these sort of things out like this. Mm-hmm. Like, I wonder, you once said, um, and I thought, I thought it was very insightful. You once said that, um, you know, wow, you know, here, here we are at this dark site, whatever it was. Um, I wonder how many, how many objects you could see with your unaided eye um, yeah. from here. And, and you were kind of pointing out like tons of them. Uh, and I was like, that's a really cool, I think I'll try to do more of that. So, so yeah, I ended up doing a hell of a lot more of that than you did, but uh, yeah, you're yeah. the one that kind of instigated on that. So anyway, so, so this is a winter constellation though. And, uh, and I know it's summer, but, uh, but it's pretty warm here today. So I'm trying to cool off. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Air conditioning is in, is needed today. I, I don't have it. I oh. have a small, I have a small fan going in the distance here. Okay. Well, that's no joke. Um, in the spring sky, I'm, I'm really moving backwards here. <laughs> so, so in, in the spring sky, um, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, uh, one of the first things that Galileo pointed his telescope to um, in those early years of like 1609 and, and 1610 was or what we now know is, is M44. And he actually sketched out about 40 stars in there. Hmm. that's impressive it is but he didn't discover it you know um messy 44 was known long before and it it sort of is is a bit of a problem and and this is definitely a problem in the world today is that those who come later tend to put their stamp on things Mm -hmm. (laughs) that that's certainly been a problem um in many in many ways beyond astronomy um but what happens here of course is that we see m44 um noted on that. And, and we automatically assume, well, it must've been discovered by Charles Messier or one of Messier's uh, uh, cohorts, right. Or, or somebody around that time. Uh, that's not true. Uh, Preacepi or, or the manger or, or M44, or the beehive cluster, whatever you want to call it um, in cancer, which is a spring constellation. Um, this, this cluster was known uh, throughout time. It was actually in, and we talked earlier about Ptolemy, and it was actually in Ptolemy's Almagest. And Ptolemy noted a whole pile of these, of these misty spots. I think there was like seven or, or eight of them. But, but the, the ones that end up being deep sky objects um, ended up getting like messy and NGC numbers. So, for example, M44 um, was drawn and sketched by Galileo. Galileo did not discover it. Um, it was known about in the time of Hipparchus. It was probably no, even known about in the time of Aristotle. Um, it was known about for a long time because it's a very bright, fuzzy spot. It just looks kind of weird in the sky. I don't know why they called it the manger or anything like that. Um, but that, but that's what it was referred to. That's what preacep or preacepi means. Um, and, and it was just seen as this nebulous mass uh, in cancer. Uh, at, at the time, though, Ptolemy also talked about uh, the double cluster, which was known uh, before his time. Um, and then he added... Um, Messi seven or, or the, the open cluster now called Messi seven, uh, which, which has kind of be uh, known commonly as, as Ptolemy's cluster down there in uh, sort of on the Scorpius Sagittarius uh, border. Uh, so there were, there was a handful of these things. And then also the coma star cluster up in coma Berenices. Mm-hmm. A lot. One, one, one. So these, these are all easily seen um, naked eye objects. You don't need a telescope to see them all. And then what happened is that um, as Galileo observed, 
um, he started pointing his telescope at, at some of these, not all of them, but at, at some of them. Um, and that's how he made his discovery. So, you know, although we think of Galileo kind of as sort of the, maybe in a way, like, like some sort of um, ill-conceived founder of astronomy, um, although he really was the first one to look at, or among the first ones to look at and publish his telescopic observations, um, what he was doing is pointing his telescope at things that people had already known about. He was just making further discoveries and building on those, those uh, previous early peoples. You know, I, I get caught up in the romanticism of, of looking at some of this stuff for the first time with optical aid and just the, the wonder and the awe that, you know, the observer must have had at the time. It, it must have been incredible. It must mm-hmm. have been incredible. And I'll, and I'll tell you, you know, um, it's one thing to, to talk about these things. It's one thing to go out and, and look at these things. Um, I'm really invested in this. I've gone and stood at the foot of the Galileo statue in the Tribuna de Galileo at La Specola in Italy. And, and I've gone and made some of these observations myself in the same countryside that Galileo was making these, these observations just to go and look. Mm-hmm. And, and that is, is a, is a transcendental experience to, to do. I've, I've gone to the Hotel de Cluny and, and spent a couple days there in uh, Messi's end of Paris, where, where he made his observations and, and had his observatory. And I've walked the, the grounds and I've looked at the sky there at, at night um, to see like what his sight lines would have been. And it's changed quite a bit and there's bigger buildings, but it's an old section. And I, I went around and I looked at the dates and all the buildings around there to see which ones were new and to see which ones would have been there before uh, Messier. And, uh, you know, you kind of get, you get this real perspective of what it, what it must've been like for those early people to go and look at this, look at the sky. And, and again, when we go out to, to the dark skies that we go to, there was people there long before us that were looking at the sky and, and have stories there to share as well. Yeah. It's fascinating. I, I do love the history of astronomy and, and the early observations. So, so an, a question that, that eventually was raised in my mind during all this, and, and these were all things that I was, I was looking at over the course of a long period of time, over about 10 years. I, I, when, I, when I was asked to do this brief presentation on this, I, I told my wife what I was doing. And she said, what do you know about that stuff? And I go, I don't know. I've been doing this for 10 or 12 years. This is my project. <laughs> this is my observing project. Maybe this, maybe this is what makes me a good observer. I don't know. Um, and so I kind of explained, I said, well, yeah, like all these papers that, that I, that I've been writing, all these observations that I've been doing with small telescopes and, and going to dark sites and, and going to these, these really far off places in the world and, uh, you know, going, going to Italy, going to France, which she, she went to as well, going to the top of Haleakala, um, and making some of these naked eye observations, um, to give me, I think to give me that experience, what was it like for these early observers to look at this stuff? What was their sky like? If you could find the best dark sky sites, not saying that maybe they had those, but, but certainly um, if you remove yourself from the light pollution, if you put yourself in those locations that they were observing at, and then combine those experiences with, with your other experiences from the darkest skies that you can get to, what would they theoretically have been able to see? And I think I have a good fix on that now. I think I've done it. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> so, so 
where, where can you find this? Like, is this in the historical record? Like that was, that was one question that I had, you know, like before Messier, you know, we all have the Messier card and, and, you know, the Messier objects marked on, on any of our star charts that, that we might have, but um, where did they first appear? You know, that, that becomes my question. So we have a set of deep sky objects that are in and known about in the sky before Galileo starts observing, then Galileo starts observing, he starts looking at these. How does that happen? Like that just does not like, like that would be impossible for one person just to plot and do. I think that that is, is too far a stretch. And there's an answer to this. (laughs) Well, let's hear it. (laughs) Yeah. The answer to this is called uh, uh, Uranometria 1603. Okay. Okay. Which is a, which is a star atlas an amazing star atlas by a guy named Johan Baer. So um, I'm going to mention Al Sufi really quick though, before I get into that. And Al Sufi did find um, M31, the Andromeda galaxy and plotted correctly on his charts, but it didn't make it into Uranometria 1603. Um, I, I tried deciphering the Latin around it. It seems like there's like a weird reference possibly to Al Sufi in the passage in that area of sky. Um, and there's like a part that almost looks like it's been erased where, where M31 would have been. Um, and I'm not really sure why, why that is. My hypothesis is that because uh, Tycho, who was observing um, in the late uh, 1500s, didn't uh, plot it. And it wasn't in the Rudolphine tables by Kepler. I'm not going to get into all the, all the real academia of this, but I think because it wasn't in there, that, and there wasn't an explanation about it. It was just such a big question mark because out of all these things, I think that M31 is, is among the easiest to see. And I think that uh, maybe there was a reluctance to do it. They were also still burning people at the stake for talking about this sort of stuff that probably also weighed heavily on people's minds. I think uh, Bruno, I forget what the date was. It was like 1597 in Italy. Uh, a, a, a person connected with the church named Bruno was burned at the stake um, for talking about the universe in, in ways that, that we, that, that, that we dive deeply into people were, were being persecuted um, and, and killed for, for talking about these sort of things. It's hard to believe that uh, less than a dozen years later, Galileo is, is going into the church and telling them how it is. Um, that, that's pretty amazing. This was a huge shift in, in thinking. Anyway, Unimetria 1603 doesn't have M31. M31 was found by Al-Sufi. There's actually other Al-Sufi observations that are in Unimetria 1603. Um, but if you go and get a copy, Unimetria 1603, the Star Atlas, it's available at, um, well, if you, if you just Google Uranometria 1603, you'll find all kinds of sources to it. If you start looking at a lot of the online digital libraries, many of them have copies. I think I've tracked down seven or eight different copies of this. So oh, uh, the Linda Hall Library in the States has a copy. Go ahead. I just, interesting. Uh, that's all. Yeah. Uh, you, so you can actually find these things now. And so th- this was really... Um, the 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 thing that allowed me to really dig into this project is that sort of in in a way um, they had finally gotten to the point of digitally scanning a lot of these old uh, texts and atlases, although they're in Latin, and I'm not um, proficient at, in Latin at all, and and rely heavily on the error riddled Google Translate and and my friends like Randall who 
who know uh, a lot about Latin and, and can help with, with the things that I can't, but w- with the, with the Atlas itself, you know, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Well, this Atlas is worth, um, you know, all of the words because it contains, except for M31, the entire set of objects that were known prior to um, the use of the telescope on the nighttime sky. So it includes all kinds of things, um, things that we now know aren't uh, nebula or galaxies or clusters or whatever, um, like the Omega Cygni area has, has a set of double stars in it. Um, V1 and V2 Sagittarii is a set of double stars that, that were plotted as nebulae. Um, and they're actually plotted. So they were known about um, in the time of Hipparchus and Ptolemy wrote about them. And then when Bear made up his, his, um, his Uranometria 1603, he put them in there. But what's interesting is sort of, there's a few interesting parts. I, I think this is all pretty interesting, but one of the most interesting things is that as far as I can tell, Bear makes few references to these. And he plots them as stars. But what he did is he didn't print them the same way he printed the stars. He made them faded. So I always think of these as like the faded stars of Bear's Uranometria 1603. And if, you, if you're looking through and you just look at it, like maybe, you're, maybe he was concerned because this, this is a, a many years long project. Maybe he's concerned he's going to be persecuted, right? Well, what do you do? You want to you put this stuff in here. He was a smart guy. He was a lawyer and uh, knew how to kind of work the system and work around things. So what, what do you do? How do you do this? Well, you plot them as stars, but then you, you pull back on the printing of them. So you only barely press in the ink. So if you look, you'll see them. It looks like a printing error, right? Mm-hmm. So if, you're just, if you're just looking at one of the charts, you look at Cygnus, say, oh, there's a printing error, you know? And then you look at a chart of Sagittarius, say, oh, there's a couple more printing errors. Well, where do those printing errors line up with? Well, one of them lines up with M7 in Ptolemy's cluster. Um, that's exactly where it is. Another one lines up with V1 and V2 Sagittarius, which isn't a known nebula now. It's just a tight set of double stars, but the area does look kind of fuzzy. It's part of the Milky Way. You got another one uh, north of that up in the Scutum star cloud. Uh, you get another one over in Hercules by F. Herculitis. And uh, although that's just, just a region that just happens to be a concentration of Milky Way, it wasn't known then. This is all just naked eye stuff. Got one up in Draco, another set of double stars. You got, um, you know, the, the list goes on. There, there's um, all kinds of these, you know, that are up there. And then one that, that he did put in that I found was the, uh, was the uh, Codehanger cluster, which was actually found by Al-Sufi um, and apparently lost for many years. This is interesting because it was lost for many years. Why is there a faded star where the uh, code hanger cluster, what came to be known as Colander 399, that, uh, that is actually marked in Uranometria 1603 and there's nothing else there. It fits perfectly. And that was an Al-Sufi discovery. So one of his did actually make it in there, which is kind of cool. <laughs> so then uh, again, there's this, <clears throat> there's this star chart that, that exists and that's pre-telescopic, but just right before it, like, it's amazing. This thing comes out in 1603, six years later, less than half a dozen years later, there's people starting to point telescopes at the sky. Um, Galileo in Italy, and there was, there was folks in the UK, and, and very soon, all kinds of places just spread like wildfire. This, this was the thing to do. And, um, and here we have actually a, a, a set of charts that encompass everything that was sort of known about in the sky right prior to just before people started using telescopes and and adding to that body of knowledge. Um, 
so what they were doing and what Galileo did is, is he probably, you know, and it's not mentioned widely, but these, these charts, and I don't have it on here, but I forget the, the urinometria went through like eight or 12 printings. Like as soon as they printed it, it was sold out. They printed another set. It's sold out. They printed another one. It would just, they would print it and it would sell out. You think, you think our astronomical books go for astronomical prices because they sell it. I can't imagine what this thing was going for. must've been astronomical. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Likely unaffordable for most. Yeah. So we have this, this great chart and then we have people starting to point telescopes at the nighttime sky. I don't know that they were using this. I I really can't find too many references to this. Maybe somebody could, could look into that and and let me know. Um, But I'm assuming they were. This was selling out. It's it, they're, they're making thousands of copies of it, at least hundreds of copies of it per printing. So these are floating around. So I'm guessing there would have been copies um, available and around, at least insofar that that more and more of this knowledge was being dispersed, right? Like maybe somebody didn't get a copy, but somebody somewhere gets a copy, finds out so-and-so's interested in astronomy, copies out a few of the charts by hand and, uh, and mails it off to them. And this happens today. I needed a piece of information and wrote Mark Bratton one day, famous for the Herschel object book. And, and he actually copied out um, something for me that, that, that was difficult to send digitally or, or not available to send digitally. And, uh, and so this happens even today. You, you could imagine this occurring over correspondence, um, especially people that have connections like Galileo or Hardy Erner, who was involved in the church. And the, imagine the church did get a copy. I mean, holy cow, I imagine they did get a copy of Bear's Urinometria. And uh, he probably would have found out who has a copy and maybe requested a copy or requested um, some of the charts as, as he explored the nighttime sky. So what, what Hardy Erner was doing and what Galileo did maybe to a lesser extent was they, they knew where these fuzzy things were. These were being plotted in widely available charts at the time. They, they, they would know that these things were meeting up with what they were looking at in the nighttime sky because these were the charts that they were using. And so they knew to look where these faded stars were at the deep sky objects, and then they were drawing them. And then what they would do is they would build upon this. And the first person to really, really build upon this was Hodierna, starting in the late uh, 16-teens, and the early 1620s. And he, he would look at the sky and he would look at fuzzy spots. And then when he found fuzzy spots, uh, he would point his telescope at them and he would draw them. And then what we have there is, uh, is the first uh, diagram of the Orion Nebula. And then I've put in my own, my own drawing of, of the Orion Nebula through 20 by 60 binoculars. Cool. Sort of, you know, kind of getting into the conclusion here. I, I know we're, we're kind of getting short on time there, but uh there's all kinds of other historical lists and uh, and places that that one can plumb for these old kind of um, observing lists or things things that they might want to observe. Um, in the RESC, we have the Journal of the RESC and we have the Observer's Handbook, and and many of these up until I think the handbook up until 2000 or so are actually digitized, and then the the journal starting in about 2000 or so are, are digitized. Um, but I was able to go through the digital copies of the handbook and find some really great lists dating back to 1917. One that I really like is the Galactic Nebula, um, as published in 1980. And then in those in those old handbooks and journals, they talk about Beckbar's Atlas of the Heavens. So I picked up a copy of that because it has these beautiful uh, dark nebulas that are hand drawn in into the atlas. I think they're really a, a great resource for hunting uh, some of those down. So, so. 
with all these, you know, the things, things that I'm looking at here, these are all things that you can see just with your naked eye, a lot of them, binoculars and uh, really small telescopes, you know, which, which would blow any, any of our smaller telescopes today would blow um, the telescopes that like Galileo and Hody and others were using. And, and certainly the astronomers before them didn't even have telescopes. So they were just using their eyes. So it, it's kind of a lot of fun to sort of, sort of trace, uh, trace all this out. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting stuff. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think I talked too much there. I, I really had a lot to say yesterday and I had it in me. I thought this would be a good place for me to release the demons. <laughs> no, no, no place better. No place better. So I'm not sure if you have any, any comments on, on any of this or, or any, any sort of any of your thoughts around observing with small telescopes and, and making some, some observations yourself, Shane. Well, you know, again, I find the history very interesting. Um, I think it's, you know, understanding, I guess, what some of these old astronomers were were able to see, um, I think it highlights just what is capable, you know, in terms of putting in some time and, and using some different observing techniques. And just a couple of weeks ago, we did the episode on small telescope observing. And, you know, there is so much to see up there with a small telescope. It's just a matter of looking at the right things. You know, it's, if you're looking at 14th magnitude galaxies, don't, don't use a small telescope, but you know, if you're looking at clusters and double stars and, and a whole pile of other things, you know, you, you can spend an entire lifetime with a three inch telescope and not see everything that there is to see. So um, you know, I, I love this kind of stuff cause it's kind of inspiring in terms of what you can do with a small telescope. Well, that sounds good to me. I I'm all talked out. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> thanks. And, thanks for hearing me in this. Yeah, no, it was good. Thanks, Chris. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.